The views and opinions of authors expressed herein do not necessarily state or reflect those of the United States government and shall not be used for advertising or product endorsement purposes. Hey there, Seat41A listeners. Greg Taylor here announcing a special series of episodes. We wanted to spend some time with our fellow MSC officers out in the Air Force world, especially those that have unique deployment experiences, and learn how their time downrange helped them grow as an administrator and as a leader for their future jobs. So, we sat down with these MSCs and got their stories, and we think you'll enjoy getting to know a bit about the people we serve with. If what you hear provides you with a moment of inspiration or makes you curious to learn more, we encourage you to reach out to the people interviewed or to us here at C41A.com and ask a question or let us know your thoughts on these stories. And now, on with the show. Welcome to the C41A podcast, In the Field edition. I'm Greg Taylor, coming to you from Allied Air Base at the Medical Logistics Warehouse of the 379th Expeditionary Medical Group. I'm joined here with Major Samantha Brown. Major Brown, can you tell us a little bit about your position and how long you've been here at LUD? Yeah, sure. So I'm Major Sam Brown. I'm the medical logistics flight commander I'm in ground surgical team lead here at LUD. Um, I'm, I've been here for almost almost 180 days, getting pretty excited about maybe the idea of redeploying. Um, and here my role has been a medical logistics flight commander. I filled in as the DO for my boss and also uh, did some ground surgical team lead stuff, which has been really cool out here in Qatar. And what was your home unit that you came from? I deployed out of Lackland Air Force Base. So I, what were you doing there? I've been stationed there since last August. I PCA'd from a DHA staff job um, over on Fort Sam previous to that. And I'm assigned as a group practice manager over women's health, pediatrics, and mammography. Great. And, you know, really thankful that you gave me the opportunity to come and meet you on location here. And I've been here at LED for about a week now. And just say that Sam and her team, they've been very gracious hosts. We had a really nice end of fiscal year celebratory barbecue last night, which they uh, let me crash. And uh, I'm really appreciative of some excellent food and camaraderie amongst the team. So just take a moment to say thank you very much for being a, you know, a great host. Yeah, well, it was our pleasure to host you, and I can't say enough about how proud I am of our team out here. Of you know, we have active duty guardian reserve all on the log account, and they just bring such richness and diversity and fullness to the mission. So, and of course, you know, they bring that log dog spirit, whatever it takes. That's exactly right, you know, and I don't know whatever it took to make some of that barbecue last night, <laughs> you know. I think there's some hidden gem grocery stores off base or something where, where some of the stuff came from because, you know, you definitely didn't get any of that from the DFAC or, or, or the BX. I mean, they're loggies. They're going to find it. If it's out there and they want it, they're going to go find a way to procure whatever it is they uh, have a requirement for, including barbecue. No, that's perfect. So we're here, though, today to talk about a different deployment because this isn't the only one you've had. Let's just uh, jump right into that. So tell me a little bit about when you deployed for Operation Allies Welcome and what position you held while you were deployed for that time. Sure. So I found out I was walking around uh, Wilford Hall on the 26th of August. It was a Thursday. 
And the MRO, who's a good friend of mine at the time, um, pulled me in. I just PCA'd over from Fort Sam, so I had an in-processing checklist. And she pulled me in her office and she said, stop doing that checklist, Sam. Start doing this one. And I said, okay, you know, no worries. And she was like, you got to deploy on Sunday. And I'm like, all right, you know, that's no big deal. Or, you know, she was a little frazzled or we were both probably a little fra- frazzled. And I, I walked around and I started doing an, another checklist, um, which was things like picking up a sleeping bag and uh, running over to Reed Clinic and doing some minor health, you know, screenings. And by Sunday, the 29th of August of last year, I was on a bus headed towards New Mexico. And it was pretty crazy because I've never ridden on a bus with, you know, I don't know, 30, 40 other people. It was completely silent the entire time leaving Lackland, going to New Mexico. We knew we were probably doing something with the refugees, but we didn't know exactly what. So that was my, that was how much notice I had. So probably about 48 hours notice. Um, And then once I deployed there, I deployed with the, for anyone who doesn't know, um, EMED stands for the Expeditionary Medical Support System. And while there, I held the role of MCC team chief, patient administration team chief and information systems team chief kind of all rolled into one at the JTF Holloman. Yeah, it's pretty typical in a EMED setup that MSC officers will have multiple roles because there aren't enough for you know every function that we would do in a hospital. So can you tell me a little bit about the story of how you ended up with the jobs that you had? Yeah. So I was deployed out there with three other amazing MSCs. So four total, two were lieutenant colonels. Our DO was Lieutenant Colonel Justin Wolthuizen, and our SGA was Lieutenant Colonel Ben Meehan, um, both incredible MSCs, and I still keep in touch with them. I actually texted them last night about end of fiscal year, just celebrating, because um, I know Colonel Wolthuizen is out, uh, Scott, and celebrating another fiscal year, probably himself. And then I was deployed with another captain, Captain Garrett Guthrie. And so Garrett, and so the two you know, senior ranking MSCs are kind of, you know, we were deploying the EMEDs. And so when we arrived at work on Monday morning, the EMEDs had been deployed out to Holloman from Fort Detrick. And our task was we had two days to set it up and populate it and be ready to receive patients by Wednesday. So as you can imagine, my MSC bosses were pretty busy trying to coordinate the setup of the tents and, you know, the arrangement of all of these triwalls. And in the middle of everything, Garrett and I stood there and looked at each other and said, well, these are the MSC functional areas. What do you kind of want to take? And he said, well, I I think I'd like to do some log. And I said, okay, well, why don't you do log and facilities and BMET? That'll probably keep you pretty busy and I'll do what's left. And that's actually how the cards fell for the next three months. And that is how we we closed it up. Garrett ended up, you know, working on the disposition once the mission was over. And um, I went off and, you know, deployed the field server and did all kinds of IT stuff and stood up records rooms and ran the MCC, which was stood up for the entire three months, you know, that I was there 24-7. Yeah, you had mentioned before in that that conversation, you didn't maybe necessarily understand the implications of like, it was like a small conversation, then it just became, this is what I'm doing now for the entire rest of my deployment. Like a small conversation that turned into like a large change or a large, uh, you know, direction that you, you headed in. Yeah, absolutely. So that is how it remained. And by the end of it, you know, because the mission grew very quickly and there were, you know, we started out with just deployment of the EMEDs and eventually it grew into four lines of effort, you know, in multiple. So if you think of logistics, you know, for example, initially was one tent at the EMEDs and became multiple warehouse sites across the base or 
patient administration started out with two forays. And by the end, I think there was a total of about 17 that were working between MCC patient administration and information systems and supporting that infrastructure that had been laid in, you know, different places as the mission grew really quickly. So you mentioned that you had about 48 hours or so between when the MRO at Lackland approached you and when you're loading up on a bus. So you obviously didn't have much time to do any pre-deployment training. What experience, you know, did you come to the deployment with you think that really helped you to do the job once you got there? So prior to you know, I'd done you know what I consider a lot of the fun MSC functional areas. So I'd done a fair amount of information systems. I'm an information system specialty match, and any MSC that's ever encountered me will kind of know about that. But I had done a medical logistics account, and I had done readiness as an LT, and then ended up going to an HPERB. You know, and, and everything leading up to you know those moments really was preparing me. And it could have been you know just the functional area experience, but also you know just the leadership, the the officer first, the quick thinking on your feet, being able to keep a cool head and some really stressful situations, those types of things also, you know, lend themselves. So I, I think my preparedness, you know, wasn't necessarily because of some great CBTs I did before I deployed, but it was really just, you know, the way MSCs are grown up um, and all those experiences I had had over the, the prior nine years in my career leading up to to my deployment, you know, with 48 hours notice. So I had done an HPERB, you know, I did IT AFIT, I mean, then I follow on to a DHA staff job that was very IT heavy. I was the CTO, the chief technology officer at the METC for a year, and then I became the CIO at the METC um, when my boss retired and um, the Army decided not to replace him. And those types of roles and responsibilities and just that that level of you know, technical, technical and strategic level knowledge, you know, definitely helps prepare you for when you just have to think on your feet and, and be fast and make good decisions. Yeah, I think, you know, it's an advantage that we as MSCs have that every assignment and even multiple times within the assignment, you know, we could just change jobs and really have to figure it out on the fly and, you know, make it work. And it sounds like you had a lot of varied experience prior to that builds a portfolio that where you feel more confident in yourself that you can do the job. Yeah, I also think part of being an MSC is that, you know, we we learn early on and get lots of exposure. You know, my first assignment was a small MTF. So, you know, I had exposure to the pad. I had exposure to, you know, some of the other areas that, you know, my my little mission touched, you know, and so even just being an MRO and understanding, you know, what, what goes into an EMEDS UTC, for example, what roles are, are supposed to be there, you know, from, from BMET to the providers, to the support staff, to the nurses, and just understanding, you know, as people showed up, right, because as part of the effort, there eventually was an RFF and forces would just start showing up from like the guard and reserve. And, you know, my boss, you know, the SGA or the DO, they were probably really busy. And so if they showed up, you know, people would be looking for the first MSC they could find. Where do we put this person? Where do they need to go? Where do they need to work? Um, Because they're they're here to help. And so I think just having confidence and that's been built up over time, you know, through MSC experiences and knowing that when you're the, the lone MSC, I know you've talked about you're kind of the lone MSC at your you know, your current role, just having that confidence to be like, yep, this is, yep, I know this, or or I know where to find the answer. And, and this is where we need to go because um, people are relying on you for that expertise. Right. I'm a big proponent of the, your effectiveness is often 
directly correlated to the strength of your network that you have because you know, I can't possibly hold all the information in my brain for like the things that I'll need to make decisions on, you know, over the course of a year or, or several months. But I can retain that if I've got an IT question, I know the person I need to call. I may add you to that list. <laughs> um, and then they can at least set me in the right direction or ask some questions that I can, if I have the answers to those, I can make better decisions. I think that's one of the great things about our core, for sure. So what did you know about the Afghan mission prior to getting tasked with this deployment? I'll be completely honest. I'd been watching the news and there had been, you know, unfortunately there was that big event, you know, out at the Kabul airport and there had been a lot of pictures and there was this picture of this, I think she was a Marine or a soldier, you know, holding an, an Afghan, you know, child. And uh, my husband jokingly, uh, when he found out I was being tasked to go do something with the, with the refugees was like, well, you know, I better see a picture of you, you know, helping some kids and, and sure enough, like about a week later, there was a picture of me carrying a kiddo off an airplane. Um, that's about all I knew is that people were coming out of Afghanistan and they were coming out rapidly and it sounded like they needed maybe needed some help. So you got in place, you all pretty much went to work right away setting up the events. And then as you're setting up, people started arriving. So can you talk to me about, you know, one of the challenges just, you know, early on in the, in the ramp up, what was one of the challenges that you faced and, you know, what did you do to get over it? So a couple challenges, one, the speed at which things happened and changed. So initially we were all under the impression, okay, we're here to do emits. And probably about a week, week and a half later, it was no, you actually need to help these people with their physicals processing, which is a big undertaking. They were being assigned a, like a parolee status. So it's not a full green card or visa holder, but it's, it's part of that process, which if anybody has ever helped a family member or had, you know, a friend go through the immigration process, it's lengthy and it's complicated. And so having that brought forward to us, um, the, the medical, team that was there and say, hey, you actually need to help with this. Oh, yeah, by the way, you need to also do e-meds. And oh, by the way, there might be a few other things we need your help with later on as lines of effort um, with a team of like 70 people was a pretty, it, that was a big challenge, right? Because you feel like there's just wave coming at you of things that you need to do. And so I think that was initially one of the big hurdles. And I'll just do a shout out to Colonel Walt Heisen because he was so proactive about understanding these are the requirements that are that are coming or the requirements that we have, and this is the help we're going to need. And he immediately started working on, you know, we need more, we need more help, we need more forces. And um, when they did show up, that relief was was very welcomed. So I would say that was one of the big challenges, though, just being immediately task saturated, as many MSCs will find themselves, um, but also not letting that get away from you and being able to, you know, still inspire your folks like, nope, nope, we're going to get it. We're going to do this. We're going to take care of these folks. And, and we did. So just not getting overwhelmed. I'm sure that ramp up stage, you know, I listened to the general who was in charge of the task force. There was a video that, that Sam had shared, which I watched just a little bit ago. And he, he was talking about a ramp up, then a steady state, and then a drawdown phase to that operation how mentally and physically exhausting that can be. So, you know, how, do you have any anything to share, like kind of how you kept your spirits and your energy up? 
Yeah, I think while I was there, you know, especially initially during the ramp up and even, you know, when you could call it kind of a plateau, you know, I would wake up and work until I was tired and I would sleep for a while and I would I would wake back up. Um, and I'm not saying that that's recommended or or the best way to approach it. But I think when you surround yourself, right, with folks that are as invested and believe in this mission as much as you do, and you you bring that passion to the table. And, I, and this could apply to any MSC anywhere, you know, it doesn't have to be at a humanitarian mission. Um, but when you, know, you start seeing the kiddos and you start seeing the folks, you know, that are there and they're they just need your help. And so I was so proud to be part of, you know, AFMS military medical support for this effort. And I think that that passion is what keeps you going every single day. You know, you start walking around and you see, you know, kids playing soccer and they're, they're thriving, you know, and they're, they're out of danger, you know, or you see folks, you know, that are getting ready to, you know, be resettled and they're, they're, they just have smiles on their faces that you just, you can't, you can't describe it, right? That's what keeps you waking up every morning and coming back and putting on your uniform and saying, all right, let's get to work team. You know, I'll say I had a small piece of the overall mission that, you know, I was a participant in and I've had the opportunity and I've been so thankful to hear so many stories like from Afghanistan all the way to areas in the United States, like safe havens. And it's just such an inspiring set of stories that people have and just some phenomenal teamwork. And, you know, really, a, you know, a whole of government approach. You mentioned about, you know, working with the Garden Reserve. You know, I know they were a, a piece of that as well. And, you know, that, that was part of the relief that Colonel Wildhuizen got brought in, right? Mm -hmm. So did you have to train up people when they got there? How did that go? I mean, in that particular circumstance, nobody had a ton of training out the gate for you know, a massive airlift humanitarian effort and doing, you know, a, a mission where we're executing physicals processing, you know, which isn't something we would normally do at an MTF. So I wouldn't say the training curve was any steeper for, you know, any of our Guard and Reserve partners than maybe just your normal active duty foray. Um, what we did do is you, know, you get to know the folks when they arrive and say, hey, you, what do you, what do you do as a civilian? Or what do you do, you know, day to day, you know, for your active duty and try to pair people where their skills are strong. And, you know, I know I leveraged my strong skills, you know, at that particular mission. And um, I would just you know, ask them, hey, you know, what do you usually do? And a lot of them were, were ready just to jump in. You know, I think there's nothing unmatched about the the willingness to do the mission and the passion that the enthusiasm that the Guard and Reserve bring is no different than the active duty counterparts. Like, you know, for me, once they're all in uniform, I, I don't usually see a big difference. You know, maybe they have a few more questions or, you know, hey, you know, I haven't done this in a while or, hey, I've, I've never done this, you know, at, at drill weekend. But, you know, they're, we just encourage them, you know, build an environment where everyone's comfortable to ask those questions and um, get them answered and just sync up that team and go. I know, you know, you, it was a, it was a collective effort, but, you know, what you were able to accomplish uh, mattered. And one of the things that really motivates me looking back and, you know, the times when I've, I've really just been the most inspired is when the things that I'm doing have had like direct impact on patient care or somebody in need during this deployment. Did you have any experiences like that that you can talk about? Yeah. So when the EMEDS plus 25 comes with a field server and initially when we stood up and started executing our mission, um, providing urgent care services essentially to our population, uh, to our guests, 
Um, the field server really wasn't being leveraged for that. Um, they don't use Alta T um, or or those platforms, you know, or that wasn't being used. And I was able to work with the forays I had, as well as the the joint J6 that was there. And we redeployed the field server and used it, tailored it to create an EHR for our guests to assist with their physicals processing. And that effort ended up growing into a system that you know, we developed locally and intranet, right? Not internet. And was able to eventually transmit those records to the CDC, as well as inter- integrate it with the hummingbird system they were using to assist with the the refugee effort, the larger effort, um, as well as receiving some of the vaccination records later from where they were arriving in New Jersey. So that particular effort, I was very proud of, and uh, especially the portion of it that streamlined the process for physicals processing. And Holloman ended up being, you know, a pretty, the fastest site, you know, some say it was the fastest site to get them processed. And the quicker we could get the process, the quicker they could get that plane ticket to be resettled. And so by leveraging my information systems background and being able to work very, very closely with our calm counterparts, you know, I, they're my people you know, with their Buzz Lightyear wings and um, being able to bring them in on, hey, this is how we need to deploy this. And hey, this is how we need to set up our network diagram to serve our providers providers and to serve, you know, the medical mission was something I really was passionate about. So all of those people, um, whether they know who I am or what I did or not, um, have their electronic records. They were processed quickly, efficiently, safely, kept secure, as well as given to the CDC so that they could um, have access to that later on down the road if they needed proof that they were vaccinated or it had um, tuberculosis testing, et cetera. Um, So I felt like that was just the right thing to do for those patients to just make sure that they were taken care of and that their information was taken care of. Yeah, I know just coming from IT, you know, these are words you hear all the time, but you know, that, that security and reliability of that information, you know, is just going to pay dividends for years mm-hmm. for them. And, uh, and so, you know, just kudos on that effort. When we were talking earlier, one thing that really struck me as, as very interesting, uh, was that, you know, that deployment was in 2021. And then here you are, 2022, deployed again to Al-Udeed. And like I said, the whole cycle from Kabul, Afghanistan, all the way back to the States, you know, there are people and, and activities going on. And so you came to one of the hotbeds of activity with the whole OAW mission. And, and you had actually a chance to brief the wing commander on the efforts that were going on back in the CONUS. Can you just talk a little bit about uh, about how that went or like what your thoughts and feelings were about that opportunity to talk with him about it? Yeah. So when I first got here, they did one of just the typical wing, you know, hey, let's get to know an airman. And the med group decided to tote me along with, I think, a, one of my enlisted counterparts. And I stood up and they asked a little bit about me and I mentioned OAW and immediately the wing commander and his deputy who were here during the, the larger lift wanted to talk to me. And I said, we, we got to have coffee with, with this, this person, right? This major. And I said, this is fine. And so we had coffee and talked and, you know, I brought some pictures from OAW and hearing their experiences here. I, I felt like together we were able to close that chapter from there. They didn't know necessarily where their guests went or, or exactly right what happened. And so I think being able to have that conversation, um, you could just tell, you know, it was just some closure 
And essentially, we went from their, you know, their arms, their hands here at Al-Udeed, and their gifts came right to us. And so, I mean, it's really the same sort of spirit, the same passion, um, the same compassion, the same empathy was carried throughout, um, you know, right here from Al-Udeed, where they hosted, I don't know how many tens of thousands of refugees um, out to the sites, you know, where they were again met with, you know, Air Force, you know, medical folks um, who are ready to receive them and provide their care. Just such a, a nice full circle moment that that was. I'm sure the wing commander and, and the deputy, you know, really were thankful for that information. And I'm really glad that you had the opportunity to kind of give some of that closure to them because, you know, it was, you know, just again, attesting from my experience, you know, in the process from Shaw, the challenges that they faced at LUD during that time were immense. And very inspiring, but also very difficult in the moment. And so it's, you can't just get over that, like, okay, good night's sleep and then, you know, good mm-hmm. to go. It's very, very difficult. So, you know, it's, it's important to learn about how, how you know, those, those hard efforts, you know, made an impact, made a difference in somebody's life. And, and you gave that. Yeah. At the end of the day, we're all people behind, you know, our uniform as, as leaders, um, and it's, I definitely understood they maybe had a need to just, to just know. Um, and I'm really glad I could provide them that information. And, you know, we all like closed loop communication and I'm really glad that I got the opportunity to be the one to help close the loop. So you had a little bit of a break from deployments between when you got back from Holloman and then when you, when you came out here to LUD, can you talk a little bit about what the experience you had at Holloman did and how, like how it changed your approach to the job once you got back to Lackland. Yeah. Um, so once I, I wasn't at Lackland too long. So I got back to Lackland in November. Um, I found out I was coming to LUD as ground surgical team member um, in December timeframe and started going TDY. But I can tell you um, just overall you know, perspective, right? You know, what, what's your perspective on your day-to-day problems, right? Your day-to-day challenges. And I think I use my time at OEW as a reference point, right? Is it really that bad? You know, is it, am I, you know, living or working out of a tent today? Well, no, you know, so maybe it's, it's not so bad. Um, Or, you know, I haven't been displaced from my home country. I'm still, you know, with my family, or at least my family, I know they're all probably safe, so when you think about it from that perspective, I think that's what it it really I left with was was perspective and then just empathy. Um, not to say I wasn't empathetic before, but I definitely now understand how to better empathize, um, not just with our patients, but also with, you know, my team. Right. You know, I worked with folks who were living in tents, under stress, working very long hours on deployment, you know, on a very short notice deployment. And it didn't mean that they left all their problems or whatever they had going on at home. It was still going on at home. And so just being a more empathetic to um, my fellow airmen, you know, big A, right. All the airmen that I'm working with. I think that's something, you know, that as leaders, we just really need to embrace those opportunities to connect and to understand, you know, our fellow individual big air airmen, you know, just helps, you know, be a better listener, helps make better decisions because, you know, those decisions are going to impact the individuals, you know, and, and, and understanding that and appreciating what those impacts are going to be is, is important, especially when you have options 
as a leader and you're making decisions, right? You know, what's best for the mission? What's best for the people? Can we do both? Any thoughts on that? Um, yeah, <laughs> I don't. I don't know exactly where I was going with that, but yeah. we'll just. Like, I, I think you have to you know. look at the the what is the whole Airman concept, right? It's you're looking at the whole person, or you're looking at the whole situation, and you know my role at OAW, you know, kind of fell you know between right that tactical and maybe operational level, you know, being the day to day like you know running in the MCC and maybe helping out with a few things, but also attending some of the more you know strategic meetings with you know Colonel Wolheisen or Colonel Meehan, you know, or just helping them you know cover down on taskers. And I think it gives you a more of a whole perspective. Um, and I can give you a, a micro example. If here at this deployment, I was approached about, you know, one of the incoming members who, you know, we had slated to be the flight chief here in Medlog, maybe going to be the senior enlisted for the squadron. And, you know, they had surveyed, you know, all the incoming and, you know, we have, you know, multiple senior NCOs that are going to be here, but I had kind of already tagged this one to be my, my, you know, new flight chief. And when it was, when I really thought about it, I said, you know, one, this person might need this opportunity, right? Maybe this is the right time for them to take a more active leadership role at the squadron level. Um, but two, you know, the, the squadron needs a strong cell, you know, and maybe we have this great logistics flight chief, but maybe the squadron needs a cell, you know, and, and a strong enlisted leader. And, and we grow up one of our other senior NCOs into that flight chief role. And so I think it just made me look at things a little bit differently from more of like a organizational perspective versus just my, you know, smaller problems within my own flight. That's a good example of just the ways in which we need to, you know, get outside of ourselves and, and, and look at the bigger picture. So you mentioned that the bus ride to Holloman was eerily quiet. Like, what were you thinking about in that moment? I remember trying to watch or listen to the news because I was trying to figure out what was going on. What is what is going on? Like, because I did not have a lot of information. So I remember trying to get you know any news information I could get on my cell phone during that ride. And the coverage out into New Mexico is like terrible. And I, I was just trying to figure out what was going on because I knew something was happening. Right. But I, you know, I hadn't sat in a, in an Intel briefing, you know, I'm sure you, you on the other side of the coin, you know, or, or Lieutenant Colonel Bain, you know, up at the mock probably had a big picture. I knew exactly what was going on. But but I did not exactly. And so I'm um, just riding out there, just trying to figure out what what are we going to be doing? Like, what are what are we walking into? And I think the unknown is always a big fear, right? Like, that's kind of where fear comes from, right? The unknown. And so I think the reason it was so quiet was I probably wasn't the only person feeling like, like, what are we doing? Where are we going? What, what are we going to see? What are we going to find? And we found the emeds, which is pretty fun, actually. Um, thinking back on it, but at the time, you know, felt like a pretty big initial challenge, you know, to encounter the EMED straight from the MEF pack in trywalls waiting for us. On that note, do you want to throw out another shout out yeah. to the CSDC? Yeah. So I want to throw a shout out to Colonel Whalen and her team uh, at the MEF pack for they deployed that EMEDS plus 25 to us. And they were so great about being reached back. I, I called her with questions. I would email her with questions. She would shoot them out different directions. And um, they were just awesome. So I have to throw a shout out. And that emeds was, it was pristine when we got it. But after three months of use and like 10,000 plus people walking through it every day, um, it had some love on it. All right. So one other question that I did want to go back to, you know, just in speaking about the challenges that you faced, you know, you had to work with interagency partners. So 
what was what was the approach that you had to take in order to make that relationship successful? I think you had to take the the human to human approach and come into it with the understanding that a member of an NGO or Department of State is not going to necessarily come to the table with the same understanding of how the military is going to execute the mission, right? Because we were all on the same team, you know, all, all of us, Department of State and all of the NGO agencies and even the like the not-for-profit not agencies that were coming in to assist with this humanitarian effort. But just understanding that they also don't come to the table with the same you know, integrity for service for self excellence and all we do and just, just gung ho attitude that's going to come with your, with what we're used to relying on each other, you know, as airmen, big A, um, even our civilians and contractors, you know, who are pretty used to working with the military. And so sometimes you have to find ways to communicate with them and relate to them on more of a person to person level versus, uh, you know, we're all in the same military or we're all in the DOD together. Um, and so that was a big eye opener for me. Um, just, you know, if you're sitting across the table from me, as a Department of State member, you might not think the same way as I do because you haven't spent your career in the military. You've spent it, you know, as a civilian or, or executing your mission in a different way. Yeah, we can easily take our training and our our experiences and our culture for granted, right? That everybody thinks the way that we do. It happens with acronyms, right? We use we use acronyms with the assumption that every know everybody knows what we're talking about. I remember coming out of fellowship where I spent a year completely away from the military and then coming back in and there are all these acronyms, the new acronyms that I didn't know I hadn't heard before because this was kind of like the, really the start of when the DHA influence in MTF operations really started to take hold. And there were all these DHA acronyms. I had no idea what they were and I'm stopping meetings. I'm like, Hey, what is that? What is that? And you know, people are just talking like, Hey, everybody knows what I'm, what I'm referring to, but like, I had no idea. And I'm, I'm willing to raise my hand and let let people know that I don't know what what's going on. Yeah, and that conversation goes two ways. When when I'm communicating, you know, with an NGO agency and they understand their their train of thought and how they think they need to take care of folks, you know, I think being able to to be open to that communication and, and understand where they're where they're coming from um, was was really important when dealing with the outside agencies. I have a couple off script questions I'm going to ask sure. you. Sam has a has a whole sheet of notes here, um, <laughs> which you know very well prepared, which doesn't surprise me in, in the slightest. But what are you reading right now? I am just finishing up Jocko Willink's Leadership Tactics book, um, which I Leadership Strategies and Tactics, I believe. But I've really, really eaten it up. I really liked it. It was good. There's definitely like a operational military mindset, former Navy SEAL. Yep. And, mm -hmm. and so, especially being in a deployed environment, I feel like, you know, you're, you're no more, you know, operational mindset than when you're deployed. Uh, and, and so it probably, uh, you know, resonates a bit, especially right now. Yeah. I think highly applicable, but he also has, you know, he has some great strategies in there um, that can absolutely be used on the day to day, you know, um, approaching the boss. Right. Or being being effective yourself. Right. Closing the loop, doing the thing like some of them are so simple. Do the things you're asked to do. I mean, that sounds simple. Right. But sometimes, you know, you find yourself or I don't know, maybe it's just me, you know, get a little salty, like, oh, man, I got to be the group. I don't know, awards POC or the, the you know, something, some other, you know, pick your 
pick your flavor of, you know, MSC job, right? Because MSCs are very popular as, you know, pro Joe's additional duties, right? And I know we we see that, you know, in our day-to-day when we're at the working at the MTF. And I think just the idea of just embrace what you're asked to do um, is something that absolutely applies. And he's got tons of those little, you know, trinkets of, of wisdom throughout that book. So yeah, absolutely, you know, kind of written in a tactical field manual way, but also a really just down to earth applicable approach um, and a very selfless ap- approach. You know, he discusses extreme ownership, um, which is something that I've, you know, I, I'm already a little bit like that anyway, as just my personality, but just executing, you know, extreme ownership of, yep, sometimes you, it's okay to say, yep, that was my fault. Or, or even if it was one of the folks yep, you know, that was my fault. You know, maybe I didn't lead them, you know, as well, or I didn't communicate downward clearly enough and and really sort of looking in the mirror and saying, you know, who's accountable for this? Because at the end of the day, if you take that accountability on for them, um, for the most part, they'll, they'll take care of you. Isn't that one of his other books, Extreme Ownership? Yeah, it's he, it is. Yeah, book. it is its own book, I guess. And you could read that. He sprinkled, he, he brings it though into the field manual for sure. Sure. No, that makes sense. I think another... MSC friend of mine out there was leading a book club with with all of their MSCs at their MTF, and they were reading Extreme Ownership when I went out to visit because she had a, a stack of ten of them on her desk. Oh, and, nice! Uh, That's pretty neat. You know, shout out to uh, Lieutenant Colonel Candace Lucas out at mm-hmm. Peterson. I love all the MSC shout outs because it just shows like there's that network, right? Absolutely. absolutely. You need it. I, I have to have my MSC network of just people to call. I mean, you were telling me about having being you know, really inspired by, by people who have a reputation of just, you know, everyone who knows this person likes them or, or is willing to, to help them out. You know, that's a, it's a very aspirational, right? That, I'm seen or you're seen as as dependable and intelligent and and reliable and you know that that and likable you know like and that you care about them so they want to care about you back I, I mean those are those are very challenging goals to achieve I think and 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 really rewarding when you are able to yeah I know when I you know, first got out of HSA and I was talking with my, my new supervisor, you know, as Lieutenant Colonel, at the time, Lieutenant Colonel um, PJ Toth, um, who became, you know, Colonel Toth, um, he, he was discussing you know, a little bit about the core badge, you know, and how proud he was as an MSC to wear the core badge and how now I could, you know, wear the MSC, the, the core badge, you know, because I had completed um, HSA. And I, it was a special moment for me, you know, a pivotal moment, right? Because you realize when you're wearing, you know, our MSC core badge that you you are part of something big and you are part of a very, very robust force support multiplier and that network and, you know, yeah, the reputation and all of that, but just that dependability, the level at which we are dependent on to help support the medical mission is something that should never be discounted. And I think what creates some of that strength is, is our bonds as MSCs, you know, oh, I'm an MSC. And it's like, you know, immediately, you know, you should be able to you trust this person and you, you have like a link. Um, even if you've, I've, you know, never met you in person before. Um, but even just talking on the phone, you know, I can tell you you're competent and you understand your role and, um, you're somebody I can depend on, you know, if I have a question or I don't understand something or I just need some help. And so I think, um, maintaining that, um, throughout my career is something that, you know, I've aspired to do. And I would encourage everybody to, to continue to maintain that, that strength, right? Because that's where we're not a huge core. So, um, and able to do 
to be able to do the things we need to do, we have to be able to depend on each other. Well, I will return that compliment <laughs> and just say, you know, for the audience, for everyone out there that I did not know Sam prior to this deployment, but, you know, working from AFSEN headquarters with all of the wings here in the Gulf and the opportunity that I had to work with you and, and with your team, you know, was fantastic. You know, we had lots of challenges to overcome and, you know, you were, you guys were the ones on the ground doing the lifting, the literal lifting <laughs> and, you know, but we all had missions to complete and, and we all knew at the end of the day what needed to get done. And I knew that if, you know, if, if something was coming your direction, that, that you guys were going to take care of it and that you weren't going to just elevate problems to our side, like you're going to try to take care of things yourself, which, you know, is usually like the, the people closest to the problem are the ones best suited to fix it, you know? <laughs> and so just again, for you and for the team, just a big thank you. I know you're about to rotate out of this assignment and maybe we'll have you back on the podcast and you could tell some stories from, from this experience as well, because the things you've seen and the things you've done are pretty remarkable and really a good opportunity for those out there who haven't had a chance to deploy or maybe are just at their first base now to learn a little bit about what what's possible out there. Well, that's very flattering. Um, I'll have to definitely extend the credit to the team, though. I mean, when you work with such hardworking individuals um, while deployed, you know, it, it really does make my job easy and it makes it easy to to look good and, you know, write everybody fabulous decorations and award packages at the end of the deployment. I, I would say, you know, just for those who haven't had the opportunity quite yet, um, you know, and that's what, you know, I was nine years into my career before I, I deployed, you know, my first deployment was OAW and then followed right on with this one. And I would say just be ready because it was pretty mind boggling from somebody who was, you know, oh, I'm, you know, IT specialty match. I came out of HPERB. I had just done DHA staff to suddenly be, you know, tagged for deployment. Um, but I was, you know, I was excited. But when, when I would be approached, you know, prior to, you know, I had obviously had a lot of my peers who had deployed, you know, different places and done incredible things. And I would always say, you know, I just haven't had the opportunity. And so I would say be ready so that when the opportunity does present itself, you're ready you know, it, because it can, right. And you can be walking around in 48 hours later, you can be on a bus to going to set up the full on emeds, you know, so when you go to emeds training, you know, take it serious, pay attention, you know, when you do your readiness training exercises at your base, you know, try to think about, you know, how would I approach this or, or, you know, maybe we need to do things a little differently, or maybe I need to take a step back because this wasn't seamless and try to just not go through the motions. Because for me, at least in my life, I experienced how real it could get how that fast and, um, I think with just the state of the world and the state of things are in, you know, you don't know MSE out there knows when it's going to be your turn to go in 48 hours. So be ready. Well, let's go ahead and, and leave it there. And um want to take one more opportunity to thank you for your time. Thank you for sharing uh, your experiences and the advice that, that I'm sure somebody out there will take and, and, and will really get them thinking. And so uh, it was a pleasure having you on. It was a pleasure speaking with you. And I look forward to the next chance we have to, to work together. Thank you so much. And I just have to tell you, um, you and all of your co-hosts are, are fun to listen to. And I hope you guys continue to you know, bring the podcast forward. And I, I think it's a great way to capture some of the experiences and advice that 
um, so many MSCs out there, you know, absolutely have. So let's let's keep getting it out of them. All right, you heard you heard it from uh, from Major Samantha Brown. You know, if you're interested in in coming on the podcast or or you have a story to tell or you want us to talk about something that you want to know more about, reach out to us. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, and we have a website www.seat41a.com. Have a good one. Seat41a is an independent company and produced by Seat41A Media. Digital media support and creative director, Manoj Rima, marketing and IT, Christopher Foote, and director and outreach, Greg Taylor.